As Chair of Inigard, I'm delighted to welcome you to the International Virtual Conference, the World of Work. We have six fantastic sessions with participants and speakers from across the globe. Uh, you're very welcome to this session. For those that don't know, Inigard is an international employment law network across 14 countries. I really do hope that you enjoy the next session and please feel free to participate in the networking sessions afterwards. Thanks very much. Hello, it's me again, um, and I'm joining you here as the principal and founder of CC Solicitors. And CC Solicitors is a specialist employment law practice based in Dublin, and we're also the Inningard, uh, Ireland Inningard member, I should say. And I'm really delighted to host this session. You're very welcome to the Future of Work. Um, I think it's a fantastic way to end the World of Work conference that we've been running the last couple of days with Inningard. And I'm really looking forward to introducing to you my panel very shortly. Um, we have leading experts in uh, tax, HR, and from the trade union movement. And I think despite the fact that we're still in the midst of a pandemic, I think that considering the future work is, is a really innovative way to approach um, what we have ahead of us. And for us to think and reimagine kind of methods of how to work better, more positively in the future. And I can certainly say from um, the perspective in Ireland that we have seen a cultural shift. And it's very interesting to note that we've had discussions and we've had the introduction of the National Remote Workplace Strategy that was published in January, um, uh, which is allowing people the right to request to, to work remotely. And we are also in the midst of drawing up a code of practice on the right to disconnect. And it's hard to imagine that we would have had that discussion like even 18 months ago. And really, it's a very progressive response to the, the pandemic. Um, and at the same time, we're having very senior, very uh, lots of other discussions at a very senior level in government. And there's all discussions about what is a frontline worker, uh, an essential worker. It's now been broadened to include other people such as retail workers and cleaners, all of whom have been really important in the context of this pandemic. And of course, they're not going to benefit from remote working. And as a consequence, other things are being discussed again that wouldn't probably have been discussed 18 months ago around the right to a living wage and, and the um, and the uh, yeah, the right to statutory sick pay, which some of you may be not realised we don't have in um, in Ireland. Anyway, without further ado, I'm going to uh, introduce my fantastic panel. Um, and first off is Dr. Laura Bambrick. She is the head of social policy and affairs for the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. It's the umbrella organisation for a third of the workers in Ireland. Uh, I'm also going to introduce Leila. No, uh, so there's here's Laura. Hi, Laura. <laughs> uh, and I'm also going to introduce Leila Ali, who previously worked as a labour and employment lawyer and external counsel. And she is now HR leader for Southern Europe, GE, Renewable Energy in Spain for seven different business units covering over 3,500 staff. You're very welcome, Leila. Thank you. And uh, also I'm going to introduce uh, David Udell, he's a tax specialist specialising in international mobility and a partner in Smith and Williamson in the UK. And uh, David manages experts around the world, employees in and out, including advising on income tax and payroll. So, David, you're very welcome as well. So, just I suppose to kick off um, on our questions. The pandemic is over a year old, and just to kind of get a general feel from each member of the panel, um, stepping back, uh, 
could you give me some sort of sense of your kind of initial observations of, of fundamental changes in the work practices? So if I might just start with you, Laura. Um, th thanks, Colleen, and thanks for the invitation to uh, join uh, the discussion today on what's a very important uh, conversation for, for workers. Um, so um, what my observations, I suppose, would echo much of what you said in your opening comments that um, I suppose I've been taken aback by the scale and the, um, the, the speed of the shift to remote working and the huge appetite that's still there for remote working when the, the pandemic restrictions will end. Um, it's only uh, a year ago um, within trade union movements, remote working would have been uh, it would have come under a gender and equality brief. It would have been seen as um, a work practice that was there to attract and retain uh, mothers, carers, people with a disability into the workforce. Where when the pandemic struck, we had almost overnight tens of thousands of businesses in Ireland, throughout Europe, throughout the world, moving their workers to work remotely from home. And this was the first experience of remote working. And for the vast majority, it has been a positive experience. Now, what we saw in the initial uh, months uh, following this uh, experiment in home working is a lot of commentary that was suggesting that what we're going to see now is the death of the office. Um, that that doesn't uh, echo what we're hearing from workers themselves. The appetite going forward is going to be for more of a blended, sometime in the workplace, sometime working remotely, either from home or from some hub nearer to home. So while we would see, um, you know, the debt of the office to be greatly exaggerated, we would see remote working as the potential to be one of the great disruptors to the workplace. So on the same levels as the introduction of the assembly line onto the factory floor or the computer into the office, it is going to it, it's going to have uh, big implications, both challenges and benefits in the years to come. Thing to say about it being the great disruptor. I mean, it's almost like social re-engineering that's actually happened as a consequence um, of the whole pandemic. Um, and I know, Leila, there was quite a bit of crossover when we, when we discussed this before on your view as well. Could you just give it, give me your initial view of the pandemic? For sure, I'm more than happy to. And, and I, you know, very much aligned to what Laura says, it, it clearly has been a disruption. No one was expecting COVID to kick in, nor were we expecting to be forced to move out of our working um, places and out of, our, uh, out of our offices, right? But I do think that it's as well a great opportunity, right? And I think that we will dig into this further in, in, in this panel, but it really has been an opportunity to, to be able to see that it is possible to move and, uh, across it to a different direction, move towards flexibility, and really discover new ways of, of working amongst each other, right? Not always easy. Uh, it requires, you know, new capabilities. It requires for us to develop new, um, new competencies in the way we operate. But it has definitely been an improvement in the sense of increasing the flexibility that we have in how we work, 
when we work and in the tools we use and, and somehow removing barriers, right? So whilst it's true that it's um, been a consequence of a, of a pandemic and it's brought a lot of consequences that have not been always easy and at times have been painful, I fully see it as an opportunity for us to find new ways of working that can somehow contribute to, um, to the point that Laura made, not only from a work-life balance for, some, for, for a specific gender, but can really contribute to making work more flexible for all employees. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting, Leila, because it's all about, and it's, it's kind of this reimagination of work. Um, and I think that's as lawyers, as HR leaders, as trade unionists, uh, and, you know, and in tax as well, it, it's, it's kind of seeing how we can come up and uh, with different kind of ways of doing the work, doing the work better. Um, and I wonder, David, in your, in your line of work, are you finding that the same? Um, well, yes, we are. I mean, what's really apparent now compared to say 18 months ago is that employees really um have much greater flexibility now on where to choose where they choose to work so we've had uh, lots of we're helping clients with lots of requests for how do we implement a flexible working policy and understand the ramifications of that from an income tax perspective from a employee benefit perspective for example on on an even greater level the fact that there's been a lot of um, uh, organisations who have been UK focused will now have a, if they are going to allow flexible working, they might have put themselves in a global flexible working procedure. And so, uh, you know, you might have had foreign nationals working in the UK uh, who understandably went back to want to be with their families overseas. They didn't want to be trapped in a, in a, in a room in a busy city and so said, well, if for my well-being, I think, it, and also for the protection of my family, I want to go and work abroad. And then as time has gone on, that's become perfectly acceptable. And what employers are doing now is they're looking at what are the implications of that, because it's that, that, very, um, that very position is making UK domestic organisations become internationally focused, even by putting one employee abroad. And what authorities overseas will look at is say, you have an, over, you have an employee in our country, it ultimately doesn't matter whether that's what circumstance that's caused by. I mean, there's always going to be every excuse for it, but they will look at it quite black and white. You now have a responsibility locally to for the administration there. Yeah, and that's one of the complexities. Maybe we can reflect on that in the second part of, of, of our talk, um, that... The whole tax side is another issue in relation to the, flex the flexibility um, that people are now accorded and the presence of employees working. I think people people were calling it last uh, in yesterday's cyber remote working, digital nomads. People can kind of place themselves anywhere to to perform their duties and, and provide the work. But there are consequences, um, I suppose, from an employment law perspective, certainly, and certainly from a tax perspective. And a bit like you, David, we're drafting lots of like remote working policies um, and putting some shape on those, which is all quite individual to each particular organization. And I suppose just kind of looping in then and kind of digging down a little bit deeper into that, um, uh, like I mentioned there about our national strategy for, for, for remote working and the national strategy in Ireland looks at it from a three prong perspective. What's, do we have digital broadband? Is there social policy? Do we have law that's fit for, fit for purpose? Um, and part of the strategy is, is recommending that at least 20% of the public serv service also works remotely. So there's kind of a big on a big commitment um, to that. And, and I suppose when we look at uh, remote work, and David's alluded to some of the challenges already 
of remote working. And I think some of you might have seen Citibank announce Zoom free Fridays, you know, which is I think is I'm all for. <laughs> I think it's a it's a positive thing. So if we kind of think about maybe I'll go to you, Layla, first of all, what you think are the actual if you dig down deep into it, you know, we've talked about being positive, we've talked about embracing new ways of work, but there are challenge there are hard challenges as well and there are key issues. How do you see that they would play out? Yeah, I, I totally agree, Colleen. You know, I, I think um, I think our journey has just started, right? We're, we're hearing a lot about hopefully seeing an end, right, in 2021 of, of, of COVID and the pandemic. And I think that um, in parallel, we're starting a new journey, which is all about remote and flexible working, right? And nothing is sorted out yet, to be quite honest, right? I think that we've lived this exceptional period of time, and now we need to find a way to establish a series of guidelines, and as you will mention, policies and regulations that can help us protect our employees and those who are going to be benefiting or, or making use of this new alternative without losing sight that it really needs to be a win-win, right? We need to find the way to find a flexible position in which people can benefit from working remotely or, or from being nomads and, and finding you know, their destination, but also not overcomplicating things for the organization, right? Because if we ultimately think about the future, we talk a lot about remote, but, but I feel it's going to be more of a hybrid combination, right? I, 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 I don't think we'll be talking about people working fully in the offices and people working fully remote. One of the discoveries in, in, in COVID times has been the benefits of maybe having a hybrid alternative, right? Where you can maybe go to the office a couple of days and then work from home and find a balance there. And the challenges we're going to be finding there is to see how we can adapt the regulation that might come up from each one of the different countries um, in the sense of making sure that we establish sufficient guidelines to protect the interests of, of our employees, but at the same time, to ensure that um, we we have means to make sure that they respect EHS and, and safety regulations, that we have means to ensure that they respect their obligations as employees as well, and that we have a, a manner of tracking um, their deliveries, right, in that sense. And, and I feel that that's going to be one of our challenges. And another one of our challenges is really going to be how we enable our leaders to be able to lead their teams who have all of a sudden found a new way of working. And, and let's be honest, we haven't prepared them yet, right? We haven't worked on ways to help our leaders develop themselves in order to be able to have a remote conversation, in order to be able to um, give feedback remotely and or establish a lot of dynamics that they're going to have to somehow put in place. And, and many of them might not even feel comfortable with the tools that are required to log into a video conference at times or share documents digitally or use box or many of the words that are now becoming very familiar to us all, but for many people were not 12 months ago, right? So we need to make sure we give flexibility without losing sight of the two you know, uh, sides of the coin. We need to make sure we develop not only in leadership and remote leadership, but also in the use of tools. And then we also need to make sure that we find ways to help our people develop their careers in a remote environment where networking might be more difficult, where you might not bump into people in a coffee conversation, right? And see how we can somehow give them these opportunities or at least make sure we can provide them with alternatives for that. And finally, 
as we're in an entrepreneurship organization, we need to see how we can find the balance and the costs, right? Because as mentioned earlier, I don't want to walk out of the office setup. So we need to find a way to make sure that we keep having offices available for our people whilst we give them the flexibility without incurring an additional cost, right? COVID has been a, a huge crisis from a health standpoint, but it's also had economic um, impact. And we really need to make sure that whilst we grant this flexibility and at the same time leave offices open for our people, we don't incur in a double cost of double setup for our employees. Yeah. I, I mean, there's loads there, Leila. I mean, you talk about, I think exactly, you've put it so well. It's about a win-win and it's about kind of trying to work out the, what the best um, role is going forward. I think you're probably right. It is going to probably be a form of a hybrid, a, a blended, blended approach. And I think the point that you make there is really interesting about, you know, enabling people to your leaders to take you forward, people in your own business to facilitate uh, because they're the people on the ground that are going to have to, you've got a huge workforce, how are you going to lead them and give them the skills to manage people who are hybrid or, or working remotely? Um, and, and and I suppose, Laura, then, um, that kind of leads to you and, and your kind of reflections. I won't say what you said about remote working before we got on here and we couldn't link up, but, uh, but uh, you, you didn't like remote working because we had a few little glitches there. But, you know, there, there's more positive sides as well. Um, Absolutely, and I, I think that's that, that's worth mentioning as a cat before we start talking about the challenges that, you know, for the vast majority of both employers and workers, this forced experiment in home working has been a positive experience. And we have to take into account that people were doing home working in exceptional circumstances. Many of them were juggling homeschooling. It was done almost overnight without any um, without any opportunity for people to set up uh, their infrastructure, for uh, people to get the skill set Leila has mentioned. And on balance for the majority, it has been a positive experience. But that's not to say that for some workers and some people that we're hearing back through trade unions, the experience has been fraught. And when you go down to look at, you know, what's the basis of, um, you know, the difficulties they've encountered, a lot of the time it's rooted in a failure to comply with uh, workers' rights and protections that already exist. So um, a, a concern for trade unions would be, and we're certainly not looking to hold back uh, progress on this, you know, our members won't allow us, they, 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 they want to move forward and work from into the future. But we do have concern that uh, more remote working will come at a cost to decent work. And in order to prevent that, we think there needs to be a routine review of existing protections, both employers' obligations and workers' responsibilities to ensure that they're fit for purpose for working remotely. A lot of the legislative protections were designed for a period when, you know, where it was imagined we were all working uh, standard hours and we were all working in our employers' premises and it predated the smartphone. So we need to look and ensure that what we have there is for purpose and that any gaps in legislation is closed. So we're seeing things like um, the right to disconnect and issues around who should bear the cost, the business costs when we're working. 
working remotely as, as Leila uh, tipped on there. And as David is also mentioning about tax implications, you know, are you, um, where, where is your employment base, where, where the worker is based or where the employer is based and the unintended consequences that that, 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 that can have both for the individual, the employer, and even at a country level, especially in Ireland, because we have so many international business, you know, looking at the macro uh, uh, picture will be very important to us. So um, the, the, there is a lot of ground to cover. And part of that is because we're having this revolution that any other time would have happened over decades, happened uh, over the course of 12 months uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah there's, there's plenty we have to do. Yes, I think that's interesting. And we talked, uh, I think uh, Leila mentioned as well about career progression and you touched on it there as well. And I just wanted to sort of, we had a really fantastic panel, I think, earlier on equal pay um, and uh, how far we've come and have we gone backwards. And, and one of the issues there, you know, really you know, Ireland in Ireland, we can't really afford to go backwards. Um, but one of the issues kind of was the interplay around the fact that, you know, if we, when there is a kind of a normalization, that perhaps more men will go back to work and less women will continue to work remotely. Um, and I think what this pandemic has highlighted is like the existence of essential work that's been taken on at home and that employees are perfectly capable of doing their jobs and at the same time do work that really is uh, kind of home caring, which has had been invisible in normal working times. And I just wondered, you know, how significant the possibility of it is that more men than women will return to the workplace and how do we kind of address that and kind of um you know i suppose effectively ensure everybody has an opportunity to sort of continue with their career progression so Leila, do you see that there's any risk there that 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 women will be kind of a little bit more hidden um as opposed to kind of the men going going back to work do you have any views on that so listen, personal opinion, I definitely see the risk, but the same risk I could maybe see in the offices, right? Um, where maybe some people were more, um, or felt more comfortable networking or felt more comfortable reaching out. Um, and, and, and I think that it's not only going to have to do with who does remote and who does not. I think that the organizations need to make sure that they create policies and a culture and that they develop their, their leaders in those teams as well. Um, and for me, they went in parallel, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think we can solve the gender gap that we might have, not only from a salary standpoint, but from a career development standpoint, just based on this new hybrid reality. We need to make sure that there's a, a totally different and intentional path to ensure that our leaders are also trained and help their people learn and develop in the sense of understanding that there's another very long journey and lots of work to do on that sense, right? So I, I think that we will need to make sure that our um, females step up and raise their hand if they feel that they need to go to their workplace and, and feel comfortable in those environments and ensure as well that our, our, you know, our, our men employees feel equally as comfortable to stay at home. And maybe we need to be proactive in that sense in the organizations. Maybe we need to give them tools or lead with the example or make sure that we communicate more 
because it's not something that's going to be easy to solve and it's not going to happen overnight either, right? So it's another big part of the culture that we're going to have to shift, right, Lauren? And, and, I, and I think you, you, you might agree, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's going to be a long journey that we started some years back. And, and, and I actually feel that when you look at the younger generations, they're helping us to push um, and to speed up that cultural change, but it's not only based on where the person works. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. That's true, Leila. And I think we've um, in circumstances where we have the remote working strategy, there's some very good checklists there. And they talk about applying. And Laura, you probably know know this, too, that I talk about applying a gender lens to your kind of homeworking arrangements to make sure that any hybrid, any homeworking arrangements that you have, that you're kind of you're assessing it all the time to make sure that that division doesn't happen. Do you have any views on that or? Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, the trade union movement in Ireland has been very much to the fore, uh, highlighting the risk of uh, remote working uh, becoming highly feminised. Because within Ireland, I don't know if this, if this is true um, for, for Leila and David, but definitely here when we talk about remote working offering the uh, opportunity to deal with, with work-life balance challenges. Often that's shorthand for uh, the challenge of juggling childcare and a career, and increasingly elder care and a career. So, so we're saying that remote working shouldn't really be in place of government providing, uh, you know, uh, childcare or elder care. And and if that's going to be the case, we're going to see it be more uh, feminised. And we know from US research that uh, workers that work remotely are more likely to get overlooked for training opportunities and for promotion. And that goes back to what Leila was saying. It's really about, you know, uh, retraining our managers and our HR practices that we no longer look at presenteeism being shorthand for commitment to the job. And if we can get over that, well, that would be a huge benefit. Uh, But if we don't, then remote working is going to very much be the mommy track. And that's going to have not, not only implications for the women themselves, but it will be a lost opportunity for, for, for men as well to get the, uh, you know, the, 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 the many benefits that from a remote work um, if it's done correctly. Yeah, and I think that's, that's important. And perhaps... The, the positive experience that many employers and many of my clients have had um, in relation to work, remote work, and is that I think employers feel that they can trust their employees, that they can do their job and they can do their job well remotely. And of course, there's always kind of um, performance issues in relation to um, certain members of staff, but they're probably going to still occur remotely. And they're not going to go away. They're not going to, and then and the person that performs well in the job in the office is going to perform well on the job out of the office. So maybe with that positive experience combined with the kind of the, the remote working going forward, that, that the career progression isn't undermined by the fact that may, perhaps more women than men will, will work re- remotely. Maybe we can think that that will be a positive potential outcome of that. Um, that's really interesting. And then David, um, I suppose dealing with the more kind of like 
the bottom line, hit in the pocket type stuff uh, and tax, <laughs> which we all have to deal with. I mean, we talked about you know this, this amazing flexibility that people have and digital nomads and, you know, like there's been so much flexibility given to employees. And you talked in your opening about it having some tax consequences for people as well. But I suppose what happened at the beginning of the, net, at the, beginning of the pandemic is like people did took those decisions. It started off three months and now we're a year down the road. Um, and, you know, uh, there's kind of there is if you get into the nitty gritty of it and what the kind of potential exposure is there and what employers, if they haven't done that have that kind of arrangement, what do they need to do now to, from a kind of a corporate perspective? Um, well, I've, I've got a, I've had a lot of questions from organizations who can really see the light at the end of the tunnel. Right. And and let's all hope that, you know, the, the pandemic and obviously the virus is contained to a, a manageable perspective where we can get out of lockdown in the next, say, three months. Right. In the UK, you're absolutely right. Um, but but, you know, what? as a result, they are now saying, well, what does this mean for us long term? Because this is now putting the pressure on. We need to start planning ahead. Um, and there's been two forms of relief really available for when they've they've had people who have left and gone abroad for three months and now that's turned into a year so the look back period how how great a risk is it really to businesses well first off there will be certain forms a, a, a large population will be tax exempt because of ta double taxation agreements that the uk has with lots of countries around the world um equally from a social security perspective uh, there's going to be um again concessions in place there'll be uh, lots of local authorities like the UK HM Revenue and Customs have released um, sort of concessions saying that you're not going to create a presence here up to a certain limitation of days which varies worldwide and so I think organizations are getting more and more comfortable in the past the problem is and here's, here's a big one it's now about corporate risk versus employer of choice going forward so an example is threat to any business is if corporate is if um, their profits in the UK are going to be taxed overseas and what a nightmare that's going to be if they create if having a person overseas creates a fixed place of business right so if that's the case then that person is basically controlling and operating um, from 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 an agent perspective abroad and that that causes quite a lot of that that will cause a huge headache from a corporate tax perspective for the past year the OECD, which governs taxation across uh, uh, the EEA, many jurisdictions, governs how double taxation agreements should be um, versed. They've said when basically that your your corporate tax risk is going to be lower if they've been working from a home office overseas, and that's that's fine, and that's caused a lot of relief. What they've said is though, if there's permanence in international home working going forward, that's not going to be available. And so, you, and so I'm dealing with um, quite a bit of clients who are now looking at their flexible working policy and thinking, can I just say to my staff, work anywhere in the world for 30 days? How about 90 days? What, what's the limit here? What, you know, what, give me Europe and give me Americas and just give me a day threshold to insert into a policy. Yeah. Well, you know, th there are, you know, 27 uh, plus countries in the within the EEA now. Um, that is going to, th there are different rules and different limitations and concessions from each different authority. Um, so unfortunately, 
that means it's not a one size fits all answer. Um, equally, the administration will vary whether, uh, depending on whether that, that organization has a presence or not abroad. But if we say, if we say look at France, a particularly strict country now, if a foreign employer has an employee in France, even if there's no presence there, they expect that employer to register with an agent to collect tax and payroll. Now, that tax and payroll is, is ultimately not going to be entirely paid by them most of it's going to be the employee right so where do you draw the line here because if that employee is causing let's call it five to ten thousand pounds worth of administration overseas mm. that is that right you know is that is that is that is it okay to be that flexible to, to your staff is that is managing that talent that worth it and this is an education piece for they have to take advice basically and understand whether there's going to be a five to ten k of payroll or registration withholding overseas. And I think when organizations understand this, that's when they start saying, okay, we'll bring these people back. Flexible working is not gonna to work to what we want it to, unfortunately. And and that's the main challenge I see from my side. It's, it's when they wake up and see how expensive this is. So there's a bit of a ticking time bomb that they need to kind of really get to grips with and have a have a think about it. And and just kind of another question then for you, David. Just you know, how important is 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 flexibility to um, say to the senior executive? I mean, what I mean, has that in the context of what happened? Now, has that changed as opposed to the, the the bottom line package? I mean, are they looking from that? Is is, is that what you're seeing? Well, um, I think what's amazing really is the if you look at, if you look on a platform like LinkedIn, for example, you see the job adverts, and there's a great job market still today. You know, lots of employers are steaming ahead with work, and for, you know, it's not the same for everyone, unfortunately. But where there are vacancies, they're now describing those vacancies as flexible working considered in brackets mm. afterwards. And <laughs> what does that mean? Well, it means it's not all about pay mm. now. It's not all about pay. In fact, flexibility, I think, has overtaken pay priority mm. and what's an even more interesting uh, factor here is the long-term effect of that because who decides who wants who who feels it's more acceptable in, in the new society today to be to be more flexible and we, we've talked about the difference here between you know men and women and what that will pan out like but what will that mean for the gender pay gap because um if pe people will take a five or ten k pay cut to work for an employer who will let them work from home because you, they will be saving travel costs. They want to embrace the future of work. They want to work in a very forward thinking organization that puts an awful lot of pressures on employers to, to, to have to formulate a policy because they want to be the employer of choice. And so it, it's almost, if you're not, if you're not going to, if you're not going to keep up with the times, you're going to lose out. Um, and what about, you know, the kind of, there's a, a complete different backlash. I, I mentioned to you in our, in our planning, that uh, I've had some clients who've just said no more flexibility. You've had your fun. Everybody's got to come back. <laughs> I mean, have you seen? Have you seen that? Or kind of people sort of just like yes. drawing a line, uh -huh. saying no, 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 no. This is like you know, this, this, and that. I mean, what's what's your view on yeah. that, David? Well, I've seen I've seen that happen, and then I've seen people try and get it get around that. So, for example, saying, okay, well, I'll tell you what. Um, let's forget the idea of me being an employee. Let's talk about me being self-employed and I invoice you for my services. And, uh, and you know what? I see this working out because then I take on the risk as an individual and it's not your problem anymore. Well, 
a lot of people in the audience and on this call will have heard of IR35 and particularly the scrutiny surrounding status for workers in today's world. And there have been some incredibly high profile cases in the news recently where workers have now deemed to be employees. And I'll tell you what, I'll just tell you straight, if if somebody is switching from an employee to a contractor overnight and they're still acting as an employee, they are going to be deemed to be inside of IR35 and they're still going to be an employee. Now, in terms of the um, the extent of whether uh, this is a UK issue or abroad, IR35 is UK legislation, but tax authorities clock on to what each other tax authority is doing every year. You know, we introduced the concept of real-time information and pay-as-you-earn and really strict payroll procedures a few years ago. And hey, presto, a lot of other countries followed. France introduced it two years ago really strictly because it's a great way of sourcing revenue. If you've got a person abroad, who is working for a foreign employer and they become a contractor, that local authorities abroad, authority abroad is going to want to understand their employment status and the, the responsibility will still lie with the employer. So what I'm saying here is I've had a lot of people say, we're going to bring people back or we're going to leave people there and just change, change them from the an employee because that mm, will solve mm. everything. And it, it, it does, it won't no, work. No, doesn't, no, it doesn't sound like it would do. And I think that, you know, even from a, an employment law perspective, um, there could be all kinds of repercussions if somebody's been working there the last year, like whether it's you know, suddenly changing everything. It could be a breach of contract, could be discrimination issues, if they've allowed that to continue for that period of time. And also then, obviously, from a tax perspective, it's like the typical kind of employment law tax question, is it an employee or employer or a contractor? Well, yeah, an overnight change is certainly not going to just change that by relabeling it, uh, kind of classic. If, if I may um, just jump in there, I think, David, the point you make around liability, right, and how organizations might react is, is very relevant, right, in the sense that when we talk about tax, many times we're talking about responsibility of the employees or of, of, or of the person who's creating that in, income, but many times there's a liability of the organizations, right, of the employer. And how can we as employers control what our employees are doing without fiscalizing, right? Without vulnerating other rights that they have from an intimacy standpoint, knowing that ultimately we're liable if there is not a respect of the tax regulations, right? So as an example, we can say, you know, you can be working remote outside of your country 30 days, but are we expected to ask them for a daily register of where they're sitting? That was would most probably, I think, be seen as, as us fiscalizing them or not respecting their private life, right? So, Newly, how do you find that win-win without overcomplicating things and making organizations have the temptation to kind of shift back to a more rigid and more conservative formula, right? That's where, where I think one of the biggest challenges is when many times, ultimately, the liable party is the organization at the end of the story. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're, we're seeing that when we talk about more uh, the, the, the right to disconnect, because in our legislation, the employer is responsible for uh, recording the amount of time that the, the, the employee is working, ensuring that they're taking the proper rest periods and the proper breaks. But then that blurs the line between when is recording time and when is surveillance of the individual. So does the employer have the right to know where you are, what you're doing? And it, it, it is that blurring and there's a lot 
a lot to be done about, again, striking balances, whether it's about your time, your tax liability. It's, you know, it, it might require a whole new uh, measurements, whole new legislations. It's a, it, it's a real greenfield site at, at, at the moment. Yeah, and I think that, and that brings us into the right to disconnect, I think, um, you know, I think ultimately have a policy, make it, you have to make a decision, I mean, whatever the kind of inflexi flexibility that you've allowed but over the last year, now's the time to put your house in order, look at it. I, I think that from a tax perspective, you probably, you'd have to know where your, where your employees were, I would imagine just, you know, to kind of be able to reconcile the, um, the taxation situation, you know, have a short term, maybe have a short term, long term policy in, in relation to that. Um, and then, you, you, Laura, you brought up about the right to disconnect. Yeah, like, like we said, we're in the process of drawing up a code of practice at the moment in relation to the right to disconnect. I know that France probably was one of the first countries to bring that in back in 2017. I think Slovakia has just brought, brought it in as well, I think just in February. And Spain, I think, is ahead of the curve as well. You've already got a right to disconnect. And I was just wondering between yourself and Leila um, uh, and Laura, is, yeah, the, there's been a lot of debate and discussion around the fact that, well, how can you work remotely and work flexibly, but then be required to disconnect. Now, I don't see that there's a contradiction there. There is an interplay between flexibility and working remotely and disconnecting. And I, I just wondered, if, you know, your insight, how they both interplay with each other, the right to disconnect, the right to work remotely. Maybe if I take from you, Leila, first, do you want to have a talk about that? I mean, you're very keen yeah, on sure. keen on keeping, yeah. things, and I like what your language is all like. You know, um, you know, don't overcomplicate it. And I think you're absolutely right. And I, I, hope, I hope that's not overcomplicating it. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and I, I think we had a you know we had a very healthy conversation um, before this panel. Right? It's don't overcomplicate it, but unfortunately, reality is complicated, right? <laughs> because I guess the question there is. If we want to ensure everyone has flexibility, how do we align what disconnection means, right? And and as you may recall, we talked about this. Um, maybe for me, flexibility means being able to stop at five o'clock and reconnect at midnight, um, because that works well for my work-life balance. Whilst for someone else, what works for them is working nine to five and then not thinking about their their, their job again. So what does the right to disconnect really mean, ultimately? And how does that impact the well-being of our employees and their mental health, ultimately, right? Because I think that the right to disconnect is very linked to people not feeling mm. um, stressed out or under excessive pressure, right? So back to your point about not overcomplicating things, I think that we're going to have to put a lot of focus in really defining in each one of our organizations what disconnection really means. Does it mean not sending emails during a period of time? Does it mean not pinging one another? Does it mean having, you know, um, free days where there's no emails and no, you know, interactions? So it's really not that simple unless we really guarantee that organizations understand what the right to disconnect entails and align on their common objectives to make sure that people don't feel overstressed or over obliged to remain 24 seven connected, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. You're touching on the whole mental health issue. Um, and like, I think all of us would say that working remotely, it's, you know, it's very effective, but it's quite intense. Um, and I think that, that we do, there is a kind of the, that need to kind of disconnect and um, it's a different kind of interaction, like Zoom calls to what it would be um, meeting someone for coffee or something like that for a chat. And, 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 and Colleen, I think just to close off on that, I do feel that similar to what we talked about when we refer to flexibility, newly this is another area in which we're going to have to train our people we're going to have to train our people now we hear a lot of you know my laptop is sitting on my my living room table and i stare at it when i'm at the couch we need to train people to forget about their laptop we need to train people with feeling okay with not looking at their emails over the weekend we need to train them to look at an email at night and and just respond the day after and it's a matter newly of giving the, the correct tools to our leaders and to our people to feel comfortable in this new reality. Mm. It just doesn't come overnight. You know, you don't grow into um, feeling comfortable with, with combining your work and your life in the same environment. Yeah, you know? yeah. So there's a training need there as well. Yeah, I agree, Leila. And then, Laura, what, how, how effective do you think the right to disconnect code of practice is going to be or... <laughs> well, as somebody that's on the working group for it and has been heavily involved in developing it, <laughs> I might be a bit biased and say, no, it's going to be great. Um, it, it will be published uh, ah, next week or the week after. Great to know. But, um, it, it, you know, it, it very much echoes what uh, Leila has just said there. Now, we're getting a lot of, even before it's been published, uh, we're getting some uh, employment law practitioners pushing back and saying, you know, the right to disconnect is incompatible with flexibility and uh, working remotely. You can't have the right to disconnect if you want flexible working. And uh, I would argue that that that's that, not what the right to disconnect is about. The right to disconnect is ensuring that flexibility is balanced overall, that just because a worker requests flexible working doesn't mean that they have to uh, give over their right to have boundaries between their working time and their rest time, their leisure time. And very much what this code of practice that will be published is about talking, what Leila touched on there, about changing the culture. So rather than workers thinking they have to answer that, that, that email just because it comes in from Leila because she works from 10 o'clock in the evening until midnight, I should feel I should have to respond to her even though I work a standard day. It's about saying, no, in this organisation, the standard uh, practice is that workers disconnect when they're not in work time rather than the alternative you should be always available and, and changing that and how, and how we do it so it is about uh, good practice good guidelines on even the tone that we use in our email should we cc all our colleagues when we're sending stuff out if we are working outside standard hours, should we then use delay timers on our emails? You can write up all your, draft all your emails, but do you have to send them at 10 o'clock at night? Should they just even come with, um, you know, a caveat at the end that while it suits you to send the email, you don't expect the other person to reply back. So there can be just 
good guidance around it, it doesn't mean that we all have to go back working nine to five and losing that benefit of, you know, having a split shift because it suits your your, your life, uh, your life balances. So I think um, I, I, I think there will be a lot of benefits for it because unfortunately, you know, people need guidance around this. It needs to be spelled out because um, things have change massively again in such a short period of time and uh, we, we just have to, to to learn how to work with this so that it doesn't come at the cost of um, you do that and it compromises your free time or you don't do it at all and, and, and you lose the benefits of, of working more flexible flexible or remotely. Yeah, and I think you're right. It's about flexibility. It's about culture. And I think it's really helpful to have a framework because, you know, people will be asking questions in smaller businesses and larger businesses and, and you can give them something. It normalizes like a, like any kind of a bullying harassment um, um, framework or codes of practice. It's, exactly it's the like same that. thing. And, yeah. and it gives, and it kind of, you know, it, it's, it gives, it gives guidance from the top down uh, as well in relation to that. Um, and David, do you have any comments on the the, the right to disconnect and uh, from your perspective? I know it's not enforced in the UK at the moment, but what do you think of that mm -hmm. as a as a practitioner in your area? Um, I think it, well, firstly, I think it's fundamentally important. I think we've we've also got to learn a lot from the last year. We've got to give ourselves kind of you know not such high expectations to make changes overnight, but we need to consider well-being and the management of talent. If you if you are overworking employees. They will go elsewhere because they'll say the grass is greener and we've just got to manage that as leaders i will you know how much i love tax and i'm just <laughs> going to say one thing which is quite uh, relevant but managing an employee's working time is extremely important and if you've got somebody for example who is um you know a worker who uh, a worker who is on national minimum wage and they are contracted to work seven and a half hours a day and no more if they're overworking and doing eight hours, nine hours, 10 hours, that causes a massive issue from a national minimum wage perspective. And I and I wanted to throw that in because it just got, it got me thinking, yeah, you do have to control people's working mm. time. Employers should be really aware, not just of the, the fact that it shows good leadership. You want to be that employer of choice and work productively and smartly, but you've also just got things to watch out for. You can't just let employees loose to pick up emails and do whatever whenever they want it's just not responsible yeah and certainly from an employment law perspective i mean this whenever when, you know, when the things go sour whether there's a grievance or an unfair dismissal or a termination and then that when it all comes out and it's like oh i worked hours and hours and it can evolve into a personal injury complaint or into a work and time complaint so you're absolutely right david to point that out that you know actually it makes sense you're protecting it's almost like the language that was used earlier the canary in the mine you know it's there to protect you it, like, actually these systems their systems and processes are saying look you know if you don't if you bank those issues and you don't watch them or you don't regulate them then it's just going to come out another in another another format as a kind of a potentially a litigation case of some kind and you know we're all about kind of really avo <coughs> avoiding that um just a little bit conscious about time so we said that listen everybody's given such amazing contributions and and this is about the future work and i wanted everybody in the panel to sort of you know 
have an opportunity to say um, what they think might be kind of predominant in the future, uh, uh, what they might feel is kind of a significant issue or kind of something that we're going to see more of in the future. I mean, I think from our perspective, listening to everything today, I think absolutely we've got to get our remote work and practices and policies in place. Um, I mean, I'm really looking forward, Laura, to the, the code of practice coming out and having a look at that. And obviously from David's perspective, uh, having a kind of a, a policy in relation to employees um, uh, where, where employees work is absolutely critical having a corporate policy in relation to that short term and long term so if I start with you David what do you think is going to be the kind of the hot thing for the future of work what, what do you see coming down the line certainly hybrid models for flexibility I think I think should start really now thinking about what office work and homework will look like. I think um, you're going to have four extremes. You're going to have fully remote workers. You're going to have full office workers. You're then going to have people who will be in the office, say, three, two or three days a week. And then you'll get people who just go in one day a week and mostly work from home. It's good to shape that out now, I think. And then and also really understand if you're going to be flexible on a global level, you mustn't you, you must be very careful of setting a precedent and understanding exactly what the traps are from a cost and admin perspective um yeah it's gonna it's gonna be a really interesting uh, one to watch for the next uh, year or so thanks david and leila what do you think what's what's your kind of top tip or top, top prediction i i could not have agreed more with what david just said i i think it's precisely that and maybe i would define it as actually more deception we all feel 2020 has been complicated, but I think that 2021 is going to be the year in which we're really going to have to explore these new hybrid alternatives where it's no longer all at home or all at the office. And we're going to find ourselves with very many new, um, not expected consequences that we're going to have to solve for, whether it's with new regulation, whether it's training our people or just coaching them in the process, right? So I see that there's going to be a lot of movement this year and that's why we really have to have our focus there right it's going to be a great year for people who are in our remit no but we really need to put <laughs> the attention there and understand that it's actually going to be in a positive way more challenging than the year before to ensure we get it right and to david's point to ensure organizations don't have the temptation to go back to square one fantastic and laura your final points I, I suppose uh, an extension of that, I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about the Zoom divide, and that is the privilege gap between those of us who have professions that allow us to work remotely, even though some of us won't work, won't work to won't want to work remotely, but the gap between those of us who can and those of us who can't. And unfortunately, many of those who have to turn up to do their job are those uh, essential workers that have kept us safe over the last uh, year, who have kept food on the supermarket shelves, who have emptied our bins. And many of those are working on low pay and are working very precarious jobs. So I think we have to be cognizant that, um, you know, going forward, if remote working is going to uh, be the seismic shift in work practices, we have to be cognizant of it's going to throw up a whole uh, new sets of winners and losers in uh, the world of work. And, and, and I definitely think we're going to hear more about that debate, whether it's going to be around taxation benefits of like 
should I benefit more through taxation model if I'm working from home versus the uh, girl in the checkout in the supermarket? Where, where's her premium for, for turning up? And in, in the last year, she should have been getting hazard pay because she was there during you know a highly contagious pandemic um so so, so I, I think we, we we will be talking about you know the insider outsider privilege gaps in uh between workers laura thank you so much and thank you to david and to Layla for an absolutely brilliant discussion on the future of work um i want to you know thank you for your contributions i really enjoyed sharing that um, just to say now, I'm just going to hand over now to Sarah Chilton. She is the partner in CM Murray in London, who, which is the UK member of Inigod. And she's just going to close the um, World of Work conference for us. Thank you so much. Uh, goodbye, everybody. Hi, everybody. And um, thank you, Colleen, for that panel. It's very interesting. Um, so it's what I took from that panel was really that we need to give ourselves all a massive pat on the back for how we've coped with the last year. As much as I'm, I know that the challenges, obviously, that were discussed, one of the things that I really took from what the speakers were saying is that we have literally managed to squeeze in decades worth of progression and change into a year in what were really difficult circumstances. So I think we should take from that because you'll be really proud of ourselves. Um, so I just really wanted to say thank you to everyone for joining us over the course of the conference, so yesterday and today. Um, for anyone who has not made all the sessions and would like to catch up on the discussions that we had, then please do look out for the emails that will be coming out which will have our recordings of our sessions by way of uh, podcast recordings available for you to listen to at your leisure and to share as well who you might think would find them interesting. Um, I would also encourage you to follow Inningard um, on both LinkedIn at Inningard Global if you search for that you'll find us and also on Twitter uh, where you can find us either Inningard Global or Inningard Executives where we will share uh, when we are updating with events and also share when those podcasts become available and any other key takeaways. Um, I think I certainly found the course of the two days really interesting. Um, we started yesterday with looking at social movements and really the focus on how involved should employers be in when employees want to support and challenge certain social movements? Um, and you know, what a couple of the important things that I got from that is that there's a really a balance to be had for employers on the outward-looking front, thinking about the freedom of expression of their employees, but also looking internally about their own diversity and inclusion and how they are comparing and whether in fact they are essentially following up what they might put out there publicly with internal actions and living and breathing their values. And that was a really interesting start to our conference. Um, I'm slightly, I confess, despondent that um, on the vaccine panel, I learned that for the pandemic to go into reverse, we need a 75% uptake on the vaccine. And in the UK, at least 20% of our population are children. So I really hope that we can speed up those testing on, on children of the vaccine so that hopefully we can put this pandemic into reverse. But lots of fascinating insights on that panel. 
and discussion around really the tension that employers have to have between mandating a vaccine and not mandating a vaccine. And really what came out of that is that it will depend, I think, upon the job that someone is employed to do. Um, we then touched on cybersecurity in the afternoon um, and the difficulties faced by employers there, particularly during the last year. Um, you know, the intrusion into people's personal lives that we've seen by way of Zoom calls. You can all see where I am right now. Um, and uh, although a deliberately plain white background. Um, and, you know, what employers should do by way of policies and agreements with staff in respect of cybersecurity. Um, and then this morning we heard, um, uh, certainly I learned about She Session, which is the recession that will happen when potentially um, the reversal of equality will start to happen as we come out of the pandemic and the impact that the pandemic will and has had on equal pay. Um, so it was a really good and interesting panel this morning discussing those issues um, and really a fear that the pandemic has pushed us backwards and also really interesting um, of our speakers to highlight that whilst a lot of employers might be good at took what was described as tokenism so you know making um availability of say slots on boards or senior positions available for women actually when it comes down to it frequently they may be on the board but they are not given the power and the pay that a man in an equivalent role would be given um, and I think that was quite a sobering um, thought um, and then if you missed it earlier in the afternoon we had a really good discussion about whistleblowing which has become a really relevant topic over the pandemic as people have felt the need to blow the whistle on lots of health and safety concerns and we heard from our speaker from South Africa that that's been a big focus. Blowing the whistle on health and safety has been a big focus in, in that jurisdiction. But also, um, disappointingly, the low prospects of success of a whistleblowing claim in Ireland. But um, increasingly um, positive news from the US that there's been a 35% increase in reporting to the American Security Council in the US. So um, whistleblowers are obviously feeling empowered in the US to take their concerns to some regulators. Um, but uh, still, I think, a long way to go. Um, and then obviously just there, as I said, we've heard some really interesting and fascinating insights as to where we are going in terms of remote working, the world of work, the right to disconnect. Um, I, for one, would like that training on how to forget that my laptop is sitting across the room from me. I think that would be very helpful. Um, so one final thank you, um, and that is really just to the chairs. So um, Rohan Byrne from People and Culture Strategies in Australia, who is not on this call, obviously, because it's the middle of the night. Um, Carl Frederick Hedderstorm of Morris Law in Sweden. Pia Sanchez of CM Murray in London. Regan O'Driscoll of CC Solicitors in Dublin. Mathilde Vial of Vial Associates in Paris. And Colleen Cleary of CC Solicitors in Dublin. And my final thank you goes to, um, well, my, my penultimate thank you goes to Pia Sanchez and Colleen Cleary for essentially chairing this conference. Um, they've put in a huge amount of work to bring it all together along with their colleagues and their respective firms and to make this event happen on behalf of Inningard. Um, so as co-chairs of the conference, I'd like to say thank you very much for making this happen. And my final thank you is to all of you for joining us, for your contributions on the Q&A, on the chat, um, for attending the networking sessions and for attending the conference and supporting this inaugural Inningard conference. And that just leaves me to invite you to join us for networking for the next five, 10 minutes. If you want to um, hang around and jump on a table, we would love to chat to you further. Thank you.